You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My name is Brian Carnavali from Harris Beach, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm joined by four attorneys in our labor and employment law practice group today, Lindsay Zulo, Dan Palermo, Ibrahim Tariq, and Taylor Ventry. And today we're discussing a host of recent developments in labor and employment law in New York State and the critical considerations for employers to be aware of in 2020. To kick things off, Lindsay and Dan, bring the listeners up to speed on updates to voting leave, the Family Medical Leave Act, and paid family leave. Sure. Thanks, Brian. In April, New York State passed an amendment to its election leave law. Employers already had to work through this in June and November for the state and local elections, but we thought it would be helpful to give a brief recap, especially given that 2020 is, of course, a big year as far as elections go. As employers will recall, previously, employees were eligible to request two hours of paid time off, depending on whether they had sufficient time to vote while polls were open either before or after their shift. The new amendment removes the sufficient time to vote requirement, and now employees must be granted leave of up to three hours to vote without loss of pay at either the beginning or end of their work shift. The employer can designate whether the leave is going to be taken at the beginning or end of the employee's work shift. Of course, if the employer and employee agree, voting leave can be taken at a different time. There is a two working day notice period for employees to let their employer know about their intent to take the leave. Employers have a 10-day posting requirement, and the, po- the posting is on New York State's website. Unfortunately, the law is silent on a couple of things that made it a bit difficult for employers to know their obligations and rights with certainty as we were leading up to this year's local elections. The two main questions I received from employers were, can we require an employee to use PTO to vote? And can we ask for proof that the employee actually voted? These questions and the answers are, like most things, subject to interpretation under the text of the law as currently drafted, so more to potentially come on that. But for now, the state has issued guidance in the form of FAQs, which we encourage all employers to review in advance of the 2020 election. Switching gears to paid family leave, a quick reminder for all of us who were toward the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018 living and breathing paid family leave, we thought it's only right to give it a little bit of attention here today. Remember, it's still being phased in. It's a four-year phase-in period. 2020 will be the third of four phases. In 2020, employees taking paid family leave will receive 10 weeks of job-protected paid time off at 60% of their average weekly wage up to a cap of 60% of the current statewide average weekly wage. So this makes the maximum weekly benefit for employees for 2020, $840.70. In 2020, the employee contribution is 0.27% of an employee's gross wages each pay period, with a maximum annual contribution of $196.72. Dan, do you want to provide the listeners with the FMLA updates? So... This year, um, the DOL released two letters updating some of the current topics in FMLA. The biggest update is going to be whether or not employers can voluntarily designate leave as FMLA leave. Um, The DOL has taken the position that if an employee takes leave for a qualifying FMLA reason, that being, you know, to take care of a family member who's ill or to care for one of their own illnesses, 
the employer has to designate that leave as FMLA leave. They can't postpone the designation in order to allow the employee to use other forms of leave like private leave or PFL. So it has to apply within five days of the employer having notice sufficient to know that it's FMLA qualifying. They need to provide the employee with the paperwork so they can uh, certify that as FMLA leave. One of the other changes that's uh, less significant, the DOL clarified that when parents need time to meet with the school regarding a child's IEP plan, an individual education plan, which is something that's generally prescribed by doctors, they do consider that as a qualifying reason to use FMLA leave. So employees are now entitled to use FMLA leave if they need to go to one of those meetings. That's a uh, helpful overview of the different types of, of leaves. Let's move the discussion, if we could, into wage and hour updates. Lindsay, can you tell us what changes employers need to be aware of as 2019 comes to a close? Sure. There are some significant changes employers need to be aware of in the wage and hour arena. First, the more straightforward topic, uh, but a brief reminder that on December 31st, for most New York employers, the minimum wages for employees will increase. The minimum wage for employees varies based on where you are in New York State, but in New York City, for businesses with 10 or fewer employees, the minimum wage rate will be increased from $13.50 per hour to $15 per hour. In Nassau, Suffolk, and Westchester counties, the minimum wage rate will be increased from $12 to $13. In the remainder of the state, it will be increased from $11.10 per hour to $11.80 per hour. Employers need to make sure they are complying with these increases. Uh, and employers with tipped employees and employers of fast food workers are encouraged to review the appropriate New York State wage order to familiarize yourselves with the upcoming changes as there are different hourly rates for fast food workers and tipped employees. The next big change in the wage now arena takes effect on January 1st, 2020. Dan, do you want to tell our listeners about that change? Sure. This is going to deal with the FLSA, which is the federal wage and hour law. DOL has been working to revise the salary thresholds. Um, the salary thresholds are a minimum salary requirement for employees who qualify under certain exemptions. If they're not paid a salary that meets or exceeds that threshold then the employers aren't allowed to exempt them from the overtime laws. So in the years past, they've tried to pass updates to this law, and it's been unsuccessful. One passed, um, I think it was four or five years ago, and then there was a legal challenge in court, and its enforcement wasn't joined. So this year, they finally passed new laws, and these salary thresholds are going to apply to any employee's who qualify for an administrative, executive, or professional exemption. Um, the salary threshold went from approximately $23,000 to $35,000 for administrative, executive, and professional employees. There's also an exemption for highly compensated employees. Previously, that threshold was $100,000, and the new rule raises that to $107,000. The rule does allow employers to use certain non-discretionary payments to meet part of the salary threshold. It's up to 10% of the salary threshold can be satisfied with those discretionary payments that are paid each year, such as commissions, bonuses, or other incentives that employers are obligated to pay employees. In terms of New York employers, this isn't going to have a huge impact because right now New York already imposes salary thresholds that exceed the federal ones for administrative and executive employees. 
but there are some employees that are not currently covered by the New York salary thresholds. So those employees are going to now be subject to a higher salary threshold. The biggest one is going to be the professional employees, as well as some public employees who weren't previously subject to any salary thresholds. In recent years, there have been uh, increasing numbers of jurisdictions adopting laws banning salary history inquiries. So essentially asking a candidate how much they're currently making or have made in previous jobs. New York State has now followed suit. So could you tell us a little bit about that new law, Lindsay? So New York lawmakers were busy during the final days of the June 2019 legislative session, and they introduced and passed several bills as part of an aggressive agenda to overhaul New York employment laws. By adopting a salary history inquiry ban, state legislation follows the legislature's recent trend of passing laws intended to increase protection of employees from discrimination, harassment, and other unfair practices. The state legislation follows New York City and Suffolk, Westchester, and Albany counties, so employer employers in those jurisdictions won't have to do much to change their practices. So effective January 6th, 2020, employers will be prohibited from requesting, requiring, or relying on wage or salary history from applicants or current employees seeking employment, continued employment, or promotion. Applicants are allowed to, without prompting, provide salary information for the purpose of negotiating their salary, uh, but employers will only be allowed to confirm prior salary information if the applicant offers the information in an effort to negotiate a higher salary after an offer has already been made. It's important that employers train HR personnel and then managers who interview candidates in New York and make sure that these individuals know not to raise salary history in interviews. Employers should also be reviewing their applications, employee review practices, promotion practices, and any other related policies to ensure that all questions regarding wage or salary history are removed. I understand this was signed into law with another bill relating to pay equity. What do employers need to be aware of about that expansion of the New York State labor law? So that law expands the pay equity law to apply to not only sex, but all protected classes. Previously, the law prohibited any sort of pay disparities for equal work performed based on sex. And now it expands it to prohibit any disparities based on any protected characteristic um, one other big change that's going to come with that is going to be the definition of equal pay for equal work. Traditionally, it was simply defined as equal pay for equal work, which is the standard under the federal law. Now it's going to be, it requires equal pay for substantially similar work. And they define that as work that requires equal skill, effort, and responsibility, which is performed under similar working conditions. So that's going to expand the scope of the pay equity law a little bit. The law does still include an exception for pay disparities that are based on a seniority system, a merit system, or a system that measures earnings and quantities or quality of production, um, as well as any other bona fide factor other than the protected characteristic. All right. Now let's discuss what may be the most concerning change for employers in New York State. Taylor, bring us up to speed on the amendment made to New York State's human rights law regarding the standard for discrimination and harassment in the workplace. So... As you may know, with the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement going on in the background, the New York State Legislature passed sweeping changes to New York's employment discrimination and harassment law. Um, these amendments significantly lower the standard for which employers may be found liable for all forms of workplace harassment and also reduces the employer's available defenses in such cases. Um, historically, both the New York State Human Rights Law and Title VII 
of the Civil Rights Act have required discriminatory harassment in the workplace to be severe and or pervasive in order to constitute unlawful harassment. Severe or pervasive conduct is conduct that alters the conditions of employment and creates a hostile or abusive work environment. In connection with that standard, courts both state and federally have analyzed whether workplace conduct had the purpose or effect of substantially interfering with the plaintiff's employment or whether it created an intimidating, hostile, or offensive environment. Courts determine this by looking at whether the harassment was severe, meaning sufficiently egregious, or pervasive, meaning that that it occurred with sufficient frequency. Now that standard remains the same under Title VII, so federally the standard has not been amended. However, under the amended New York State Human Rights Law, workplace harassment claims can now be brought regardless of whether such harassment would be considered severe or pervasive. The amendment also redefines harassment as unlawful discriminatory practice when it subjects an individual to inferior terms, conditions, or privileges of employment. That is the new standard, which has created a lot of concern for employers, and you can imagine why. And now I'm going to turn it over to Ibby, who will talk about employer defenses, or really, Ibby, I should say, a lack thereof. Well, thank you, Taylor. Yes, uh, there is one defense under the new law. Conduct is not unlawful if it amounts only to a petty slight or a trivial inconvenience. Now, for our listeners who are in the city of New York or downstate, uh, this might ring a bell. The city human rights law, uh, and remember, there are two human rights laws. There is one for New York State and one for the city of New York. The city human rights law has had the same defense for a number of years. Courts have analyzed that defense, and we anticipate that we will have to look to those rulings in order to analyze what defenses will be available to employers under the new standard of the New York State human rights law. Previously, under the human rights law, under the old standard, employers also had a defense where an employee uh, had complained first, the employer then investigated, and the employer could reduce their liability by stating that they had investigated and taken proper measures after the investigation. The new standard weakens that defense quite significantly. It is still helpful, but under the new standard, it will not be dispositive to an employer just that they had investigated and reviewed an individual's complaint within the workplace. Apart from those two defenses, uh, there are a few other changes of note. For claims of sexual harassment in the state division, claims can now be filed in the state division up to three years after the occurrence. And going forward into the next year, employers should ensure that their trainings on sexual harassment incorporate the new standard. So in addition to the change of standards that you just walked through, there's also been expanded protections for certain classes. What do our listeners need to know about that, Taylor? So first of all, Brian, effective November 18th of this year, victims of domestic violence now have expanded protections under the law. While the New York State human rights law has long prohibited discrimination against victims of domestic violence, the amendment expressly states that it is unlawful for employers to refuse to hire or terminate someone because they are a victim of domestic violence, discriminate against a victim of domestic violence in compensation or other terms, conditions, or privileges, and use any job application or posting that expresses any limitation, specification, or discrimination against the individual status as a victim of domestic violence, or that inquires about the individual status, 
unless the employer inquires for purposes of providing assistance to that individual. The other piece of this is that now, as is the case with other reasonable accommodation obligations under the New York State Human Rights Law, employers will be required to provide the employee a leave if requested, unless the employee's absence would impose an undue hardship on the business. Employers are able to charge the leave to any paid time off that the employee has available, or alternatively, if none, um, the leave may be unpaid. But employers should note that the employees are entitled to a continuation of their existing health insurance coverage during such a leave. In regards to the leave itself, again, unless it's an undue hardship for the employer, it may be taken for several reasons, such as for seeking medical attention, services from a domestic violence shelter or a rape crisis center, psychological counseling for the employee or his or her child, safety planning, temporary relocation, legal services, or even to assist prosecutors. Lastly, employees must provide notice to their employee, employers where feasible. If advance notice cannot be provided, the employer may require certification of the need for leave in the form of a police report, court order, or documentation from a medical professional, advocate, or counselor. An employer should note that they're required to maintain the confidentiality of any of this information. Next, I'll move on to what we call the hair bias ban. Employers should note that there is now an an added protection for employees based on certain traits, including hairstyle. And this went into effect on July 12th of 2019. We know that race has been a protected category under the law for a very long time, and this amendment simply adds to the definition of race. Under this amendment, race will now include traits historically associated with race, including but not limited to hair texture and protective hairstyles, which have been defined as braids, locks, and twists. It is important for employers to note that the law identifies hair as just one possible trait that could be considered historically associated with race. Some employers have expressed legitimate health and safety concerns over this new amendment. You know, you think about in a factory, for example, where someone may have very long hair, could be you know, potentially caught in a machine, um, and, and that's an obvious safety concern. And in these types of situations, employers have a duty to consider alternative ways to address their concerns before imposing any restrictions on an employee's hairstyle. So in other words, they'll need to have a conversation with that employee um, and see if they can meet a sort of a middle ground as to how to deal with the situation. And lastly, I will quickly talk about the new prohibition on discrimination based on religious attire and appearance, which became effective on October 8th. This is similar to the hair bias ban that we just dis discussed, except that the hair bias ban, as we said, was linked to race, whereas this prohibition is linked to religion. Under the existing law, as we know, employers may not require employees to forego a sincerely held practice of their religion unless the employer demonstrates that accommodating it would be an undue hardship on their business. This amendment does not change that rule, but it instead simply adds that the wearing of any attire, clothing, or facial hair in accordance with religious requirements may qualify as a sincerely held practice. So obviously then, employers cannot refuse to hire, retain, promote, or take any other discriminatory action against an individual for wearing attire or facial hair in accordance with the tenets of their religion. Thanks, Taylor. All right, Ibby, last question. There's been a change regarding non-disclosure agreements and confidentiality agreements in settlements to all claims of discrimination and harassment. So tell us a little bit about that, if you could, please. The change in the law is intended to allow complaining employees uh, to still be able to speak about their complaint 
after settling it. And by settling it, I mean settling a lawsuit or a complaint within the State Division of Human Rights. The law changes the parameters for how confidentiality or non-disclosure can be imposed in such settlements. Under the new amendment, employees cannot be coerced or forced into non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality provisions within a settlement of such a claim. There is an exception, though, that employees can still uh, include confidentiality or non-disclosure if they would prefer to keep the underlying nature or circumstances of the complaint private and confidential. In that case, the employee must receive the term of confidentiality that the parties would agree to and then must be provided with 21 days to consider that term and upon signing must be granted seven days in which they can revoke their acceptance to confidentiality or non-disclosure. This also means that in settlements of such claims where confidentiality or non-disclosure is involved, there will be actually two agreements, one agreement that will settle the underlying claim and one agreement that will record that the individual employee prefer to keep the settlement uh, confidential. So to wrap up our discussion on harassment and discrimination, uh, it's, been a, it's been a busy year of changes for New York State employers. The best practice going into 2020 for all employers is to review their procedures related to investigation of complaints. With the new standard, it is important and paramount to review any and all complaints of discrimination. With the lower standard for liability, small complaints that rise up and add up can lead to liability in circumstances where there would not have been liability in the past. I'd like to thank Lindsay, Dan, Ibby, and Taylor for joining us today. They covered a lot of ground on critical labor law updates. For more information, visit harrisbeach.com slash labor and employment. There you can register for our on-demand labor webinar series, which offers even more detail on these topics and also provides SHRM credit. You'll also find contact information for our attorneys and don't hesitate to reach out should you have additional questions. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.